This podcast is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Learn more at nypl.org slash podcast. And to make sure you never miss an episode, find us and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Welcome to the New York Public Library podcast, where each week we bring you conversations with world-renowned authors, artists, and thinkers, recorded in front of a live audience in New York City. On this week's podcast, we're thrilled to welcome Padma Lakshmi, author and Emmy-nominated host of Top Chef, who came to the library to mark the release of her debut memoir, Love, Loss, and What We Ate. In this conversation with NYPL's Jessica Strand, Lakshmi talks about food, family, and the importance of being raised by strong women. So um, I wanted to start, um, as I said to you in our brief two minutes behind the scene here, I just wanted to start with um, your background. And I wanted to start with, you moved here from India at four, am mm-hmm. I right? Um, and your mother had come two years before, um, and it was uh, the shame of divorce, or was it to, it was, it was the shame of divorce that she wanted to leave? Well, my mother, uh, had an arranged marriage, which was quite turbulent and difficult, and at that time, in the early 70s, um, she was very brave. She chose to leave her marriage, which was, uh, not a healthy one by any means, and, um, you know, she came to this country in 1972, because at that time, it was very hard to be a divorcee in conservative South India, and it's getting better now, but, you know, there's kind of this invisible scarlet D, you know? Sure, sure. And, you know, I watched Mad Men, and there's that one divorcee in Mad Men, and that's kind of what it was like. Um, and, you know, she, she didn't really know that many people here. She had an uncle or something in Rhode Island. But so she came here, and I stayed back with my grandparents back in India, and so I didn't see either of my parents from the age of two to four, really. You um, then came to New York, am I right? And then, uh, but you, and then you eventually moved to Los Angeles. Yes, um, I came to New York on Halloween night in 1974, and coincidentally, my mother happened to also arrive uh, here on Halloween night in 1972, so for us, Halloween has a very special uh, emotional significance in our family. It's a big holiday with my daughter and I as well. And um, I remember coming here. I remember that I, still today, I took a very, very um, long-winded way to get here. It was like one of those budget tickets. My mother didn't have a lot of money. And so it was New Delhi, Cairo, Rome. London and New York, and I remember that journey vividly. And when I got here to JFK, and I remember driving in, she had a friend who had a car who came with her to pick me up. She had a blanket because she didn't want me to be cold in the New York fall. And I remember seeing all these little people, children, dressed up in these bright, lurid costumes. And, and you know, when we got to my mother's apartment, um, she showed me around her little apartment, and there was a huge dish of candy. And I thought that she had put it out to welcome me. And every time the doorbell rang, which it did a lot, she kept giving my candy away. <laughs> and so I was very, you know, flummoxed by this. And she, then she had to explain to me that this is a holiday and that kids dress up and this is what they do. And, 
And I thought, wow, America, this beautiful, magical land where all you have to do is dress up and people give you candy. <laughs> Maybe you've had a love of sweets ever since. You know, I don't have a sweet tooth, um, fortunately, but my daughter has a terrible sweet tooth. In fact, I just got a call and uh, was chewed out by her dentist, which, <laughs> you know, so clearly I terrible mother with sweets. But. <laughs> um, you, uh, when I, I, you went back and forth, Cindy. I want to talk about your grandmother, and I want to talk about how you, in the book, you really talk about your palate was mm -hmm. really developed at a very early age cooking with her, and I, I wanted to talk, uh, can you talk about your grandmother, since she is a formative figure in your sure. life? Sure. I mean, I think most of our grandmothers and elder women in our family, and men too, have a very um, tacit but significant effect on our lives in ways that we don't always realize until later in adulthood. My grandmother's, actually my grandmother's photo is in the, is in the cover of my last book, my cookbook, my second cookbook. But, you know, my grandmother, uh, we lived in a two-bedroom house in South India, and there were eight to ten people at least at any given time. Um, there and so they was there was always cooking going on and you know like most houses the kitchen was where all the action was at it's where all the family gossip was exchanged it's where all the major decisions were made and it was also where you got to see women unguarded women in traditional India even today are are very reserved and even uh, very modest physically um, clearly I didn't inherit that gene but um, you know they they don't let their guard down. I remember my aunt, you know, even shutting the lights off to change, even when just the kids were in the room. Um, and so, but when they were cooking, they were busy doing their, their work and, and they were almost, um, they let their guard down. They talked about things they didn't talk about when the men were there. Their saris would slip. You would see a, you know, very rare glimpse of their decollete and, you know, women hide all kinds of things under saris and in their necklaces, which is called the thali. And the thali for us is like a wedding ring. Safety pins, keys to drawers that nobody knows about. Um, and so from a very early age, I came to associate um, femininity with food. Um, cooking in my house was the domain of women, not children. And so, you know, just as I loved makeup and I loved you know, putting on eyeliner like, I, you know, this actress Sharmila Tagore in those Satyajit Ray movies. I wanted to cook and be glamorous and feminine like my grandmother and the aunts in my family who did the cooking. And you weren't allowed to do uh, certain chores until you were of a certain age. So we could break the ends off beans or we could peel potatoes, but we couldn't go through to, to the stove until we reached puberty. We, we didn't know the secret recipe for the house curry powder until we went from wearing a half sari to a, to a full sari. We did not get to make the pickles or the dosas or the crepes for the family until we reached marriageable age. So it was like a rite of passage, which is not very different from how a French professional kitchen is... Um, is organized. You know, my grandmother had her own cater of commis and sous chefs, and you know there was a d real hierarchy to to that kitchen. And my grandmother had the magic touch. There's a saying in Tamil, which is my mother tongue, which is "avlodakai ka which means literally 
her hand has an aroma to it. And it means that anything that that woman touches, she just has the gift of, of, of flavorfulness in her, in her hand and in her fingers as she measures those spices. And my grandmother certainly had that. You, and I mean, this was sort of, these were obviously your roots, and yet it was very difficult in American culture to feel, I mean, your memoir talks about it as feeling really the part of any culture. I mm. mean, when you were in that kitchen, I think you felt Indian. Very Indian, yeah. Um, but as you moved to Los Angeles and sort of a lot of issues about being, as you say, brown girl shame. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm wondering, when did that lift for you when you didn't feel? I think it's in stages. It still comes back. It's uh -huh. not something that completely leaves. I'd be lying to you if I told you I'd exercised all my ghosts. But I think it happens gradually. You know, I was also very much shaped by New York City. I am a child of New York. And in the 70s, it was hard in Manhattan to find some of these Indian ingredients. So my mother would take me to Chinatown for Asian vegetables or Spanish Harlem for tamarind and sugarcane and cilantro, which was very rare back then. It wasn't at every grocery store. So through my palate and through my mother's adventurousness, I... I saw in New York, you know, you only have to walk one block to see that there are many races and colors and ethnicities and languages spoken. So I never felt in any way um, as other or as much of an outsider here in New York, which is probably why as soon as I was able, I moved back to New York. As you did in Los Angeles. I didn't like Los Angeles. My, mother, my mother's job transferred her from Sloan Kettering to the City of Hope. She's an oncology nurse. And we went to L.A. And, you know, in New York, I had a lot of independence. I would roller skate and meet her for lunch in the summer, um, you know, up and down York Avenue. And, and I, I felt very self-reliant. I was a latchkey kid. My mother was a single mom. I had a key around my neck. And, you know, in, in L.A., you couldn't go anywhere. Nobody walked anywhere. And you had to be driven. And my mother didn't drive until like six or eight months after we got there. She would take the bus to work. And, and it was so also during your adolescence, right? And that yes. also makes things difficult. Now. Yeah. I mean, wanting to change your name, you even mentioned. Yes. Yes. What but, was the name that you thought oh, of? Oh, it was terrible. It was, <laughs> my name was Angie. Oh, hi. Yeah. <laughs> and then Angelique. But, you know, it's, it, that, that is something that a lot of immigrants do, you know, and, and, we're a country of immigrants, even those people who have ancestors that have gotten here on the Mayflower, even settlers, whatever Ann Coulter thinks, are immigrants, you know, and so there's a lot of talk about that um, right now with what's going on politically, and I just think that that's actually one of the greatest things about this country, that we have so many influences that make a collective culture, and, and that's why, actually, we succeed, perhaps. Maybe it's not just capitalism or, or free trade or whatever. Maybe it's also these cultural touchstones that collectively contribute to something that is polished and evolved and made of many pieces of all of us. And I wanted to talk about that because I'm just not Indian and I'm just not American. I'm also very influenced by Italian culture. I spent most of my 20s living and working in Italy, and I learned all about European cooking technique in France and Italy, and that's why I can also do what I do. You know, I have Asian training with 
spice knowledge and all that that my grandmother gave me, but I also have the European influence, which was, you know, came at a time when I was also developing as an adult and as a woman just after I got out of university, and, and that had a big effect. And I think that's true for all of us. You know, you don't have to be Indian. You could be Norwegian or right. Chinese or wherever exactly. to feel like an outsider. And that feeling of an outsider is very much at the heart of this book. You know, whether I felt like an outsider because I wasn't a trained chef on Top Chef or an outsider because I was a brown-skinned woman in a white world of beauty. There's a, you know? I, well, I, I want to sort of, I'm, I'm going to dance around here, and then I really want to talk about food for okay. at least 10 minutes of this sure. interview. Um, I wanted to ask you, I mean, these are just questions that came up. <clears throat> I think, I mean, the scar, for example. Yeah. I mean, this to me is somebody who actually is very secure with who they are. Um, now. I mean, now, right. But <laughs> At when 45. Did, when yeah. did you decide not, I mean, you've told them not to airbrush it, that you mm. want people to see that scar. Mm. It happened when you were 14 years yeah. old. I don't know how you covered it up, obviously, through modeling your early through life. Through makeup. And, and, very makeup death and then probably makeup. On, on television in Italy because you were doing this no, variety. Not in no. Italy. By the so time, when did that happen? You know, I, um, I did get the car accident. I had a car accident in Los Angeles, and I have this big scar. Have you guys seen it? I can show it if you. Have, if you haven't seen Top Chef or seen me, this is what the scar looks like. So it's a big keloid scar seven inches across my arm. And that's another reason why I felt like an outsider as a model, because you have to remember I was a model 20 years ago before there was Photoshop, and it was hard. But I don't think I would have ever... Be even considered being a model if I didn't have massive college loan debt. You know, I found out that I could be a fit model and I had to pay off my college loans. You know, my stepdad's a plumber, my mom's sure, a nurse. Sure, I, sure, absolutely. So um, that's how I even had the audacity to get in there. But somewhere along the line, and I was doing that very low rung of modeling, which is basically your human hanger for the designer to see if the clothing he's designing for the runway actually works and moves, and then it goes on the real model <laughs> down the runway. Um, but then Helmut Newton, who's a very great photographer, found me and liked me, not despite the scar, but because of it. And I have to admit, it was because this important person saw me, you know, figuratively and literally, I guess, through a different lens, that it made me think differently about my own body. I mean, when I was in high school, I would even, you know, sort of, I had this pose where I would try to look natural by sticking my thumb up so that you kind of didn't see it, you know, and um, I would wear longer sleeves. So it was a very long journey, and, and because, you know, it was also the time when grunge was just coming in and everyone had all these tattoos, and so I kind of got swept up in that zeitgeist, and, and that's why I was able to work okay. and be successful as a model, and... Um, it's taken me a long time. I think the world has changed too. You know, when I was young, there there were no Jennifer Lopez's, there were no um, Mindy Kalings, and I'm so I'm so happy. Or Lupita Nyong'o's, or you know, all of these wonderful different actresses. And I'm so glad that there is now because it's a real reflection of who we are as as a people. You have a six-year-old daughter, and I'm wondering, because you travel in the world of celebrity and beauty, and she's aware of it, I'm sure. She I is. mean, she's on the set of Top Chef, and though that's a different 
<laughs> no, but she's aware of it because she, you know, when we step outside our home, I, there are photographers. Absolutely. So, so which is how sad. do you explain that? What do you? She knows that mommy's on TV, and that's why they're there to take a picture, you know. And I try to tell her just. Just smile or don't do anything. Don't talk to them. Just go about your business. You know, one of the reasons that I, you asked me why I was so open about the scar. I mean, now I have a daughter, but even before I had a daughter, I know that I was able to model because of the way, of the alchemy of my parents' genes. It's no, it was no accomplishment of my own. You know, I showed up to work on time. I worked hard. Now I eat for a living, so I exercise equally hard and, I try to eat well when I'm not on set, but I had a lot of ambivalence about it because I know also that over 90-something percent of people with eating disorders happen to be women. And I grew up with a different ideal of beauty. You know, the most beautiful woman in, woman in our family is a size 14 because she's voluptuous and sexy, and when she moves, things jiggle. You know, I was always this giraffe that didn't know how to walk in a sari. And so... <laughs> So I, I, I feel a lot of um, responsibility for how the media portrays what is beautiful. And I have to tell you, in my experience, when I've been heavier, I've gotten way more attention from men than when I'm skinny. Like, I think that is just an ideal that maybe makes clothes look good. And you have to understand, it's a business. They are in the business of selling clothes. They're not in the business of what's best for you or our daughters, or our sisters. And that's why I wanted to, to show the scar, because I think it's important. I see my scar now as a talisman of survival. I'm very thankful for it. I almost lost my life and my arm in that car accident, and, and I'm happy to have my arm. And I think that every mark in my, on my body has a story to tell. I mean, I wish I didn't have those stretch marks sometimes, but you know. <laughs> What, um, I mean, there's several things, but I, let's cut to food because we don't have the, I, um, because I cook myself and I'm, 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 lots the, of cookbooks, lots found. of cookbooks myself. I'm interested in, I always think that spices say an enormous amount about someone's origins, yes. but they also say something about the person. I mean, that we go back to certain things time and time again. So I always grab cumin and fresh thyme. I'm wondering when you go into the kitchen and you're cooking for you and Krishna, what you, I know that you, it's a plant-based diet that you mostly eat because I read about you. Yes, thank you. Um, but I'm wondering what you grab for. I mean, are there things that your grandmother told you about, your mother told you about, or there, this is like, there's the invention of, or the amalgam of all that you do with Top Chef, learning mm -hmm. from other chefs mm -hmm. also that have, have kind of formed a Padma cuisine. Yes, you know? it's true, yeah. And so what are those spices that you grab for? Well, you know, I think that what is a Padma cuisine is actually the way most Americans eat. We don't all eat meatloaf or noodles every day of the week. We often have Mexican and pasta and, you know, Chinese and Thai, and then maybe we make some weird casserole our moms made, you right, know? Right, right, right. And so I think that all of us do our versions of that. But I reach, you know, as I said, my grandmother was very strict in the kitchen, but there were these pickles that she would keep on the top shelf. And I loved pickles. Even as a child, I ate very spicy food and highly spiced food. I now know why. There's a scientific reason for that. But I used to climb the shelves when everyone was napping in the afternoon because it's very hot in India. 
And I would reach for those jars when no one was looking so I could taste this very pungent and intensely flavored foods. And one time that jar slipped, you know, it was slick with oil and it fell, came crashing on the tile floor in the kitchen and there was glass and, you know, turmeric yellow oil everywhere. And I hung there like this little monkey, terrified that my aunt or my grandmother was going to come in and bust me because they had obviously told me never to do that a million times. And then my, you know, my younger aunt Neela came and kind of saved me. But I still reach for those pickling spices. The, the portal or nucleus of the way I approach any type of cooking or food or cuisine or anything like that is through spices. Because you can take normal pantry ingredients that we always have Absolutely. in all of our kitchens. Chicken, for example, right? Most pedestrian thing. Chickens, peppers, onion, garlic, tomatoes. You can change the character of those ingredients by, you know, reaching for chipotle and Mexican oregano or reaching for, you know, sambar powder and cumin and, and, and tamarind. And so to me, spices are the, the, the magic seeds of cooking, literally, you know, those, that is what the pixie dust of cooking is all about. It's easy to make something taste good if you're adding a lot of fat or butter or bacon into it, but if you can somehow master just a small handful of spices, then you can have healthy, eclectic meals um, that you can cook for your family, and they can be interesting. You know, you can travel with your fork even when you can't physically travel, and that's really what attracts This is not the only book I'm publishing this year. This book was late. It was supposed to come out last year, but um, we actually, I'm actually writing, I've written uh, an encyclopedia. Oh, really? Yes, I mean, I always wanted a book like this, and there was what one. A, an and encyclopedia you, of spices? And yes, that's what it's called. It's a very catchy title. Wow, that's <laughs> terrific. I mean, it's, spice, it's called the Encyclopedia of Spices and Herbs. And I always wanted a book like this in the kitchen, and it has pictures, and it's literally, literally just a reference book. It's like Anato to Zatar. You can look it up, you can tell, you know, you can find out which country it's, it is, what the flavor nuances are, what dishes are made from it, why it was used, or if it was used historically. It's very, like, bare bones. Now, did you know, okay, let's talk about Top Chef. Mm -hmm. um, so, Harvey, you're, you're acting in Los Angeles, am I right? I mean, well, I was acting, but I was uh, between L.A. and New York, York. yeah. And then, you, but you were cooking dinner parties, mm -hmm. and Harvey Weinstein hears from an actor or whomever, or executive at a dinner yeah, party. You have done your research, yeah. That you are a terrific cook, right? And then, and I guess there was a, I don't, uh, Billy Joel's wife was the first person, right? Oh, yeah. The first host. And well, then you went in, and now you've been, you're an executive producer on this yes. show for the last 13 13 seasons. Episodes. Yeah. Well, I mean, 13 seasons. We've been doing, yes, it's 13 seasons. We've been doing this show for a decade. Well, there's a bunch of stuff in between. You know, it always seems like an overnight success when you get it from far, but it wasn't. So what, how He did, met yeah. me in the mid-90s. I okay. started doing Top Chef in 2005. Okay. So basically, um, that was my first cookbook. Yes, he heard about my cooking through some actors. And I did my first movie, and I had to gain 20 pounds for the role. Best three months of my life, I swear. What did, you, what did you eat? I ate bolognese and then pizza. Like my, or my appetizer was a small uh, half pizza, 
and the, with pepperoni, and then my main course was a bolognese, and then I'm I had with a you banana, on the <laughs> banana shake with malted powder for dessert. Malted powder makes you gain. Um, anyway, so so once I finished the movie, you know, I was my first movie. I wasn't, I didn't pay, get paid much, but I was still making most of my living as a model. So I had to lose the weight, and I tried to do that in a healthy way. I'd never been on a diet because, you know, I was in my mid twenties, and I'm five nine. I had the, metabolism of a hummingbird but, but like you know <laughs> if only but so I really tried to do it in a healthy way and I had cooked dinner for some actors and said oh you know that baked fish only has 200 calories and whatever umpteen grams of protein so his wife at the time worked in the Miramax publishing office which oh, they see. had just opened with Hyperion and she was standing with Harvey when we were talking, and she said, you know, and I said, I've always had a fantasy about writing a cookbook because everyone wants to know what a model eats. And, and she said, to her credit, she said, Harvey, this is a home run. And that is how I got the, the publishing contract, you know. Ah, okay. And I, I wrote, like, an essay about what, why I loved every, everything I loved about food. I wrote three recipes with my mother's help. I made one of the recipes and I took it in a Tupperware dish to Susan Dalsimer, who was here um, working at the time in that office, who's the publisher in that office, and, and that's how I got the contract. And then after that book came out, I went on publicity tour. The Food Network had me on a bunch of times. Right. And my manager said, right. you know, you're going to have to pay her pretty soon. Right. <laughs> and so they offered me a development deal. I did two series before Top Chef. By the time I got Top Chef, I had written a second cookbook and I honestly took Top Chef because I thought it would be give my little cookbook a boost. And I'm lucky I did that. And I was involved in the development of the show because I met Bravo because I had pitched them a show about books and cooking, like just like a books and cooks show where I would have a different author to dinner and interview them about their work. And they just said, well, that's a little highbrow for us. We need something with a little more mass appeal, and we're developing this show, and would you like to be part of it? And I said yes. But by the time they got their ducks in a row and wanted to film, I had signed on to do a British miniseries, a costume drama with Sean Bean. And they weren't willing to wait for me, but I had already signed on with the directors. So I went to film the movie in Rajasthan, and they did this first se season with, you know, um, right, right, Katie right. Lee. And so after the second season, you know, I saw the show. It, was, it wasn't bad. It was good. But they still wanted to make some tweaks to it. And, and they said, well, are you free now? And I said, yes, I am. And I've been with the show since season two. Now, was, did you ever want, did you ever, while you were doing other things, think about going to culinary school? I'm just curious. Did you ever? I, you know, I always wanted to, uh, no, I no. always wanted to be in the kitchen. It was just an elevated hobby. But if at 25 you had told me that I would be a food professional or have this career that I do, I wouldn't have believed you, you know, which is why now when I talk to younger women, um, I always say, like, find out how you can make a living, spin a living somehow out of what you naturally like to while away the time doing, because that's the greatest gift, you know? And I have the luxury of, of doing that, which is very rare. So I, I would have never imagined. I would Were have never there dreamed. chefs you love reading their cookbooks? Yes. You admired yes. growing yes. up or later? Well, I, I, well I, I collect cookbooks. So, so like, what were the two? Name two books that you would give to a young chef. Um, 
I would give La Technique, but I would also, but I loved, um, like I, even in college, I had Craig Clay, Claiborne's International, New York Times International Cookbook, and we were so broke, you know, that we would flip the pages and we would randomly choose a country, and then we would collectively pool, all my roommates and I would collectively pool our funds, go to the grocery store, buy all the ingredients you needed to cook, you know, Senegalese food or Swedish food or uh, whatever. There's a lot of herring in Swedish food. <laughs> can't get away from it. Um, but anyway, so, and we would do that, and that was, and, and buy a bottle of Boone's Farm. That was our, like, Saturday night entertainment. So I always loved cooking, but I... I love Paula Wolford. I love uh, Claudia Rodin. I can quote verbatim from MFK Fisher wow. or Calvin Trillin's uh, food writing. I was too young to read his pieces on food in the 80s in The New Yorker, but I was once in an airport in, going to Spain, I think, to study abroad, and there was um, a book called Tummy Trilogy. Mm -hmm. And if mm -hmm. you can ever find that book, it's wonderful. He writes so beautifully about food. And um, so those, those were the people I liked. You know, I, I loved uh, anything, like How to Cook a Wolf was, was phenomenal to me. It, it meant so much. And so, so those were the kind of things I was attracted to. I, I so have it was, old... It was, it wasn't necessarily, I mean, they're all recipe, but they're also fine writers, all of them. I mean, Claudia Roden is, you know, Spanish cuisine, mm -hmm. or, you know, I mean, Paula Wolford, Middle Morocco, yeah, 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 Middle Eastern. So, I mean, all of that, that was something that you were very aware of. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was the writing and it was the recipe. It was what attracted me. It was what made me spend, you know, $25 when I only had 30. Right, you know? right, and, right. And it was, a, you know, I had to choose between books. But when I went to Morocco as a model, you know, I came back with all these strange seeds and twigs from the souk in Marrakesh. And, you know, I can go to Chanel and walk out empty-handed, but if I go to Calustian's, I am carrying four or five really heavy bags. What? Um, can you, because you're an expert palate, you, and, um, and you didn't know this no. until recently. I mean, yeah. and, and what, it was a couple of years ago when you were yes, doing Top Chef? a couple of years. We because, were but you had... I mean, it's actually medically you have more taste buds than some of us. I am so, told yeah. <laughs> by a scientist, yes. Um, I was filming Top Chef in Seattle, and I mean, I consider myself a culinary spelunker. I am not a chef. I've never worked the line at a restaurant. I don't want to. I'm a home cook whose job it is to tell you when you're in your house how to make something or how something feels when you eat it. That's my job on Top Chef. I feel like my job is to be the audience's representative because, you know, on the voice you can hear them sing sure. or whatever, you, or you can see them dance on, on, so you think you can, you can't taste the food on a show. But I went to Seattle to film Top Chef. We were filming in the museum. I had a break. So I took Krishna to, to have a walk in the museum and there was, you know, Discover Your Senses was this kid's exhibit and there was this Italian scientist manning the taste buds booth. And so, you know, she said, hi. She was talking to Christian. I said, you know, I've always wondered, I, I, can, I, can taste some, I can taste very clearly what's in a dish. That's why I'm a good cook. I can taste something at a restaurant or a street stall, and I can re reproduce it in my home. You know, if you saw me chop an onion, you would be highly unimpressed. But you know, and she said, well, you're probably a super taster. And I said, I've heard that term. Is that really a thing? And, and, and she said, no. She said, I can test you for that. And I said, really? Right here, right now? She said, yes, it's not painful. You know, it can do it right now. I can test you and your daughter. And it's a very simple tab test. 
you, they just have little pieces of paper with drops of different essences of flavors, um, like bitter or sweet or salty. And the people who are super tasters have additional um, taste buds. It's like, I've been told, I'm not very musical, so, but I've been told it's like perfect pitch or, or like dogs who can, you know, hear whistles that we can't. So that's basically the same thing. That's amazing. Okay, I, 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 we, these are so short and I have many questions, but the title of the book, um, I was sort of touched when I heard the story. I mean, I, it was Nora Ephron who, yes. and because of heartburn, I thought, God, this is just like too perfect because the I memoir know. with the recipes and stuff. Can you tell the audience how, I mean, she, the, how the, the title came about? Sure. I was very lucky to be mentored and taken under the wing of Nora Ephron in, in the last period of her life. I met her through mutual friends at an Oscar party and I had always loved her work and I was very excited to meet her and I didn't know she was sick and, you know, she, we would go to lunch every few months or whatever. And I was, she came into my life at a time when I was really struggling with this book. You know, this, this book was like the hardest thing I've four had years, to do. Am I right? Over four yeah, years. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, my lover was dying and there was all this other stuff happening and she was very kind to me and, and she would check on me and say, so kiddo, how's love loss and what we ate? Because she had done a one-woman show with her sister Delia about this beautiful little picture book. I don't know if you guys know it from Irene Beckerman, and it's called Love, Loss, and What I Wore. It came out in the mid-90s, and both of us had loved that book. And I remembered it. I had a friend who gave it to me, and, and I have a dog-eared copy somewhere. And, and, and so I loved that book, and she loved that book. And so it was her way of teasing me, really. Um, and she was very kind to me, and she was very informative. At a time in her life where really she had a lot going on herself that she, she never even told me about. And she was very, very, very useful in my writing because she gave me technical advice that I just didn't have any experience doing, frankly. Because the book started really as something else, am I right? I mean, it was, it was not going to be... I mean, I, I think of Heartburn just as being this memoir about love, mm -hmm. loss... Complications, what she ate. Yeah, yeah, what she ate. But I, I mean, I'm wondering, because you really, you started it as, it wasn't supposed to necessarily be a memoir. Not at and all. I'm wondering, was it her influence that helped? Or was it the influence of all these various people that you had loved who had written sort of fiction, memoir? I mean... No, I think, if anything, the people who I knew as writers probably intimidated the shit out of me. You know, like, right. because I had exposure to all these great writers and you know I I love beautiful writing you know whether it's Joan Didion or Mary Carr or who you know who or MFK Fisher right. that actually knowing about those books actually made it worse right. um right. but it was supposed to be a prescriptive book it was always supposed to be really frank and talk about body image and and how I ate at different times in my life it was supposed to be a prescriptive book to answer the question I got on every red carpet or interview, which was, how do you eat so much and stay so thin? I mean, the short answer is really hard work, you know, and really a lot of willpower that I have sometimes and don't others at others. But in the writing of it, I wanted to use personal stories in my own life to illustrate certain philosophies I have about food, which is that I don't believe that one diet is right for everybody. I also don't believe that one diet is right for one person, that one person at different points in their life. 
So I was going to talk about a really hard period of my life where I was down in the dumps and living in a hotel and, you know, very depressed and how I got my appetite back. I was going to talk about a time when I had to lose weight after the baby but still nurse and still be on set. And so I was going to use these instances in my life. So I started writing about that and that kind of just went somewhere. And, it, you know, my editor at Echo, whose name is Dan Halper and who you know, was very supportive and, you know, he's a very great old school publisher, of, you know, a, a class that is really dying out in today's world. And, you know, he, I couldn't call Dan hands on, but, you know, he was kind of like, yeah, I think you're an interesting woman. I think you're going to eat, you know, write an interesting book. Just keep writing. And, you know, I don't know if you guys have ever seen Dan, but he looks like a huge Jewish Santa Claus. You know, he's about seven feet tall. And he has he's got a large cloud. White cloud. Afro. On top of <laughs> and, and he kept saying, just keep writing. Just keep writing. Just keep going in there. You know, you don't have to leave it in. But if we don't get to the real truth, we'll never know what's valuable. And so that's what I did. And then there were so many times and I'd be like, Who's going to give a shit about this stuff? Like, who's going to care? Every other day I felt like, like, this is dumb. This is not at all, in, you know. And you, you have that voice. And I had it with a loud megaphone in my head. And for that, Nora was really helpful. She said, you know, your job is not to judge your writing or even judge the people you're writing about. Your job is to describe your life and what it's like standing in your shoes let other people whose job it is help you shape that. And, you know, I also had another uh, editor who came in late in the game and really helped me piece all these um, parts of my life together in a narrative that is not chronological, that is also, you know, skips back and forth a lot. And I have to give credit to Libby Edelson. I mean, she was, you know, a great puzzle maker. You know, she said, okay, we've got this, but why don't you write some more here because there's this big hole and, you know, and I also had the help of a very dear friend from Sasquatch Books named Susan Roxborough, who is a really old friend of mine and happens to be a great editor. And she did the surgical task of something only someone who's a very dear friend and also a really good editor can do for you. She said, you don't want to put that in the book. Even if it's true, even if it's right, you don't want Krishna to read that 20 years later. It's not worth it. You know, and I needed a strong friend who could talk to me straight, tell me the hard news I needed to hear and say, you know, don't write that. You've already said it here. You sound defensive. Leave it alone. You know, things like that that I needed to hear the hard way. Right. I mean, it's a very, um, I, you, you cover a lot in your book. And I it, wanted and, to be yeah. truthful. And you, and, 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 and I would wish this could go on longer, but I have a, a, a time limit, unfortunately. And I want to go out to the audience and I want to ask, you know, that we're going to have to do a limited because I've run over here. So maybe three questions from the audience and I'm going to give this lovely man over here, my, my microphone, and you're the first one, sir. Hi, um, Hi. Padma. Uh, my name is Anton. <coughs> Anton Minkowski. Uh, I shop at Kalustians. Oh, good. And I was waiting for you to mention it, and if you didn't mention it, I was going to ask you, mm -hmm. because I know you shop there. I do. You want to just talk, like, for one minute about sure, Kalustians? Sure, I do. I, I do shop there. I grew up in a store called Kalustians which is on Lexington Avenue. The address is 123 Lexington Avenue. I remember it because when I became a model and tra traveled all over the place, they would ship me ingredients that I couldn't find in Italy. And 
you know, it was the only store that Indian immigrants had um, at that time. And they were very generous to children. They still are. They would give you, you know, handfuls of Jordan almonds or, or dried fruit or whatever. And my daughter now, you know, skips on the aisles and do, does the same thing. And in fact, um, the spice book that's supposed to come out later this year, you know, I did with the help of Clustions because they had to source all of these things for me um, so that we could photograph them. And, you know, they are very good hunters and gatherers of not just Indian food anymore. It was actually an Armenian family who started. It's a 65-year-old shop, and it's a landmark in New York. And if you don't know it, but you love food, give yourself a treat. You know, save an, a, an afternoon or at least a couple of hours and just go and browse. And, um, and so I, I love that store. And I would come back from all these weird, funky trips I took as a model, and I would say, you know, do you have Urfa chili? And they would say, yes, we do. And I'd say, great, you know. And do you have sumac? And they would say, yes, we do, you know. And so it was, for me, for somebody who was culinarily curious, it was a boon. And I think it definitely also shaped my development as, as who I am today. Hello, Padma. Yeah. So question is, what is your favorite Indian dish that you enjoy eating? It's something so pedestrian. I mean, especially if you're Indian. It's called kichidi. And kichidi is a savory rice and lentil porridge. It's sort of our chicken soup or comfort food. It's what you eat. It's not even very spicy. It's meant to be very bland and mild. And, and when I, I cook it now, there's a recipe for it in this memoir, I actually invert the proportion of lentils to rice. Traditionally, it's made with two parts rice, one part lentils, uh, masoor lentils or orange lentils if you're from Bengal, and mung lentils if you are from other parts of India. But I do two parts lentil to one part rice, and I put a lot of vegetables. Whatever's in the crisper that needs to be used goes into my Sunday kitchidi, whether it's kale or carrots or, you know, two sad celery stalks. It, you know, it just makes it in there. And we love that. Sunday is kitchidi night at our house. Padma, um, I think I speak for everyone. We'd like to thank you for just spending some minutes with your fans here today. So, thank uh, you. Uh, we certainly appreciate the time. Um, also, when I heard you speaking about uh, how girls had certain, uh, we, you didn't, they didn't have influences like Jennifer Lopez and Beyonce, and I think you should add your name at the end of that list too, because I'm an educator and certainly uh, my uh, classmates are always big Top Chef fans, and, okay. and we certainly, um, uh, they look to you as inspiration for all the, all the right reasons, and it's something to celebrate, so I, ho I hope you celebrate that. Um, my wife and I are devout followers of the show. And we always think sometimes you have a little tell when you tell, when you, when you say pack your knives. We always seem to think that we know when you really care about someone who's leaving the show because it's, it's almost like you're empathetic and it sounds in mm -hmm. your expressions and your, your, your voice, the tone of your voice says, oh boy, I think she's really upset that she, that that contestant is leaving. Maybe you could come comment on that. Sure. Um, you know, I spend more time with these chefs than anybody else. And the, the contestants are really the stars of our show. It's what makes the show great. And it's who you root for. And, you know, Tom and Gail are there every other day for the main challenge. But I'm there at the quick fire. If there's a camera rolling, I basically am there, um, unless they're in their house or something. And you do, you know, you're an educator. So every batch of, 
uh, or every season of contestants is like a new class. It's like a new fourth grade class. And it's not always the ones who are the best performing that you become endeared to. You know, it's often the guy who can't get out of his way or the girl who always makes an excuse and complains about everything else but doesn't take your advice, you know. And so I do, I have a lot of empathy for these guys. As as hard as it looks on TV, Top Chef is much harder in real life. They have to go away from their families and their jobs and their homes for at least six weeks. They're sequestered like a jury. They don't get cell phones. They don't get internet access. They don't get newspapers. They don't get books, you know. And so I, they have a lot of heart. And, and they're trying to be the best at what they love to do with 17 cameras rolling to put every mistake and slice on national TV, and my heart goes out to them. And you, you know, I I work like 70-hour weeks, but at least like I get somebody to make me a, a tea once in a while, or you know, do my hair and makeup and iron my dress before I get on set. They don't get that, and they work really hard. And cooking is also mostly manual labor. And so I, I those guys have a lot of heart. So. You know, it's funny that I'm asked to, to, to do that and be stoic because as any of my family or friends will tell you, I have no poker face. <laughs> and um, it's something I try and minimize, but yeah, sometimes you can't help it. It gets out. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you Thank all you. for coming. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the New York Public Library podcast. If you like what you hear, subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And please leave us a review. It really helps us out a lot. You can follow NYPL on Twitter or Facebook and sign up for our newsletter at nypl.org.